Welcome everyone to the She Can Fix It podcast. My name is Dr. Alana Munger. On this episode, we have a great interview with Dr. Andy Halim. Dr. Halim is one of the associate program directors here at Yale. She's a great mentor and someone who I feel like I can always go to, even when she's 39 weeks pregnant. I wanted to speak to Dr. Halim to know what it was like to come back to Yale after being a resident here and how she managed being a pregnant surgeon with an adorable young child at home. I hope you enjoy this episode of the She Can Fix It podcast with Dr. Andy Halim. I want to take a moment to talk about a great company that I recently discovered. I know we are all now in search of a new scrub provider given recent events. I want to share with you a company called Just Cause Scrubs that was created by an orthopedic oncologist by the name of Dr. Scott Porter. Just Cause Scrubs is an amazing scrub and medical-related apparel company with a humanitarian focus. Just Cause Scrubs donates 50% of all of their profits to the charity of the customer's choice. What's also amazing is that they're offering 10% off for the listeners of the She Can Fix It podcast. Visit www.justcausescrubs.com slash shecanfixit to get 10% off your order. With the holiday season coming up, a nice pair of embroidered scrubs is looking like the perfect gift. Again, the website is www.justcausescrubs.com dot com slash she can fix it to get 10% off your order and support a just cause. Dr. Andy Halim, thank you so much for joining us on the She Can Fix It podcast. I'm very excited to have this conversation because I've been dying to ask you these questions for a very long time. So thank you so much for being here. Oh, it's lovely to be here with you. <laughs> so I would first love to hear your background, hometown, college, med school, residency, and beyond. Yeah. So um, I grew up actually not far from where I'm living now in Westchester County, a little town mm-hmm. called Yorktown Heights. I went to public high school and then from there went on to Yale. So that's where I started my time in New Haven, um, majored in biology and actually met my husband. The two of us both went to USC in uh, LA for medical school. Um, he's from LA originally. And then we couldn't stay away from Yale, so we came back to New Haven for residency. Um, so I did my orthopedic residency at Yale and then did my fellowship at Brown. So I was spending a year in mm-hmm. Providence, which is a great city. Highly recommend it if you haven't been. Um, and then I still missed Yale, so I came back to work right after I finished my hand fellowship. And here I am, very happy. Nice. When was the first moment you knew you wanted to do orthopedic surgery? So in medical school, I was one of those med students who was drawn to the surgical specialties in particular. I think mm-hmm. everybody finds something exciting. You know, some people loved emergency. Some people really like the outpatient setting. I loved the OR. But it was a little bit of a coincidence that I ended up doing an orthopedic rotation. Mm-hmm. I had an awesome lecture from this hand surgeon, Stephen Schnall, um, who talked about doing a toe-to-thumb transfer in uh, during med school. And I thought it was the coolest thing I'd ever seen. Um, so I had the opportunity to do a rotation with him and jumped on it. And so that was the beginning of finding that ortho was for me. 
Was that the first moment you knew that you wanted to do hand as well? I really liked hand, but I would say I actually was fairly open-minded going into residency about what I would end up subspecializing. And I really liked a bunch of things, including trauma, actually, but um, but ended up finding my way back to hand. <laughs> what was the thing that really pulled you toward hand? Um, I really like the diversity of the types of patients and the types of operations, mm-hmm. which... I think you can find in some of the subspecialties to some degree, but in hand, it's really pronounced. You know, you see really interesting trauma, but you also see very routine cases and you see, you know, advanced arthritis and sort of more complicated elective cases. So the sort of combination of things I thought was, was super fun. Nice. Incidentally, it's also very nice to be able to sit down to operate, especially when you're 39 weeks pregnant. I know. you. Yes. And by the way, congratulations on literally, I saw that post on Instagram with the fact that you were operating last Friday when you were 39 weeks. Well, actually it was 38 and six days, but yes. Which is pretty yeah. close. Pretty close. Yeah, it was great. Oh my word. <laughs> oh my word. And one of the things I wanted to talk to you about, which speaking of pregnancy, is that you are about a week or a few days away from baby number two. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wanted to know how truly difficult is it to be a pregnant surgeon as well as having an adorable, adorable young child at home? So when I was looking through the questions that we talk about today, this was one that I hadn't really put a lot of thought into. But once I started thinking about it, the answer is actually pretty clear to me, which is that as orthopedic surgeon women and moms, we are extraordinarily privileged in general. So mm-hmm. I would say, sure, there are some things that are hard. It's, you know, tough to be on call and being exhausted right. anyway. However, being an orthopedic surgeon means that I can afford childcare and I have maternity leave benefits. And I know that I'm going to be able to feed my kids and send them to college and do all that stuff. So I just think the primary feeling that I have is that it is such a privilege to be a professional mom. Right. Nice. Have there been any moments when you were thinking, goodness gracious, what am I doing right now? <laughs> um, I would say generally, generally speaking, no. I, I've been lucky to have a pretty easy time both times. So there were no situations where I had to scrub out and go, you know, throw up or anything mm-hmm. like that. So it's, it's, it has that's always been. good. <laughs> it, it is good. Yeah. I didn't have too much nausea, so it really hasn't been bad. I've been, um, probably more relaxed this pregnancy, kind of knowing what was coming and mm-hmm. kind of business as usual for the most part. Right. I don't have to, you know, dislocate hips. So I suppose if you are struggling with a really large uterus while trying to dislocate hip, that might be different. <laughs> Speaking of like you being more relaxed, were there any other things that you did differently, either logistically or just your mentality with this pregnancy versus your pregnancy number one? Um, I think I knew what my limitations would be. I think I knew that I was going to be tired and not to push it too much when I didn't have to. On the other hand, mm-hmm. I think I also felt more comfortable saying, yeah, I can, I can operate until pretty much close to the end because I'm going to feel fine. And um, so I think just knowing what was coming has made it be a little bit more relaxed. Nice. What advice do you have for mom surgeons and orthopedics, both ones who are first time becoming pregnant as well as ones like yourself who have a young child at home? 
So one thing that I would say, um, when I was, again, a medical student, we actually had a, like a, you know, panel on work-life balance from a bunch of different residents. And I remember very vividly this one general surgery resident saying that, you know, as a as a new mom and a resident, she felt like she could neither be the best possible resident nor the best possible mom. And right. that at the time made me quite anxious, I would say. Mm-hmm. What I would say is that, and I know this is going to sound probably excessively positive, but <laughs> I would I would argue the opposite, that being a mom makes you a better surgeon in some ways, mm-hmm. and that being a professional woman makes you a better mom. Right. And I would say that because, you know, I have found that my sort of understanding of, you know, sympathy to parents, but also every single patient that we treat is somebody's kid. And so I think being a mom has just given me a, maybe just a a better perspective and sort Mm -hmm. of more, even more ability to empathize with patients. So, so that's been that side. And I think being a professional mom means that I get to be the role model I want to be for my kids. Right. Oh, that's very sweet. (laughs) I told you it was excessively positive. (laughs) No, I support. I support. Um, One of the other things I wanted to talk to you about is your experience of returning to work at Yale as an attending when you were here as a resident, which I think is, it's interesting to think about because I feel like there are both benefits as well as some cons that come with that. So I was wondering what were, what was your mentality when you were doing your job search and you were thinking about the pros and cons of coming back to Yale as an attending? Yeah, so I think it's very much personality dependent whether it's going to be a good idea for you. Mm-hmm. For me, coming back to Yale felt great. I am an extremely friendly person, and so the idea of having essentially friendly faces everywhere I went was lovely. You know, mm-hmm. I, as a resident, was invited to one of the you know orthopedic floor nurses' baby showers. Um, I you know, it was on a first name basis with a lot of the scrub techs. And so coming back to that kind of environment was, you know, especially when you're first starting out in practice and, you know, to have some anxiety and are somewhat nervous, it was lovely to be surrounded by basically friendly, supportive faces. Mm-hmm. The On the more practical side, it was also really nice to know how to get things done. Every hospital system has its, you know, funny things about it, you know, the, the, right. the inefficiencies or the, maybe the tricks of, oh, well, mm-hmm. I know where to get that particular set or where that traction pin is stored or something. Right. So coming back to Yale, it was really nice to sort of know how to get stuff done. What um, were some of the things that you were thinking that, oh, but there's this? So, I mean, I think sort of the, the obvious one is if you're going back to a place where you were very recently a trainee, are you going to be treated like a trainee. Um, And, you know, I'm somebody who likes to go on a first name basis. And we have obviously lots of attendings that I had been their intern for, you know, (laughs) six years prior. Um, But I guess I would say I was surprised at how quickly that transition went from being resident to attending. Like, I Hmm. think it was, there were no times when I felt like I was really being, you know, um, uh, taught to, for instance, you know, I felt like I immediately had the sort of respect and understanding that I was going to be able to make my own decisions and indicate patients well and be responsible on my own. Hmm. 
Did they start, you know, because I imagine like if you did a joint case with an attending, it would be a different sort of conversation versus you have a, you as a chief resident versus you as an attending doing the, those joint cases. Um, yeah, so that's, you would, you would definitely think so. And again, I think it probably comes down a little bit to personality. It may mm-hmm. also come down to fellowship experience. So where I did fellowship, I had a lot of autonomy. I had um, attending privileges and was very much used to operating independently and, mm-hmm. um, you know, being alone overnight, being on call, making decisions on call. And so when I came in, I had probably a good degree of confidence about mm-hmm. how I was doing things and what I was doing such that I wasn't always looking to someone else to, to say, hey, do you think this is a good idea? Right, right. <laughs> Although I would always encourage everybody early in practice to get lots of advice on challenging cases. Mm-hmm. We all have can benefit from, from other advice and, and input. Nice. What, um, for residents who are in training and looking at you know, doing their job search and all those sorts of things, what advice do you have for those residents when they're first starting to look? Um, I mean, I think it's helpful to start to look relatively early. I mean, I think mm-hmm. one of the the big decision points is obviously whether you're going to look for an academic or a private practice. There's this myth of the private academic practice, which I think is actually very hard, if not impossible to find. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of a major decision point. And then it's a matter of shuffling your priorities. I think, um, you know, nobody is going to find the job that is perfect in every single way, including salary, call schedule, location, um, you know, maybe number of practice partners, you know, ability Mm -hmm. to have a mentor. There's so many things that are important. So it's kind of a matter of figuring out which ones are the more important. Maybe having a great mentor in your field within your practice is the most important thing. Then that has to be the thing that you focus Mm -hmm. on maybe it's salary, you know, there, there's so many different options. Right. Nice. And then what do you think that resident physicians should do in order to optimize matching at the job that's right for them? Like, what is it that they should actively be doing in order for that to happen? If you, I mean, I think if you are lucky enough to be in a situation where you're pretty sure you know what you want and where you want it to be, I think talking to that group early, kind of finding out what they need can be Mm -hmm. helpful because, um, you know, when I was looking at jobs, there were, for instance, you know, a lot of um, hand surgery positions that really wanted somebody who could do lots of flaps and flap coverage for their orthopedic trauma cases. And that wasn't something that I was going to get a lot of at Brown. So Mm -hmm. I think if there's a particular job that may actually, to some extent, affect your fellowship decision as well. Mm. Interesting. Interesting. I know that we've talked a lot about, you know, currently what you're doing and everything that you've done in the past, but I would love to talk about what your future goals and projects are. You are now our associate program director, um, in addition to all your clinical responsibilities. So what are your goals moving forward? Yeah. So the APD role has been, I think, one of the most sort of fun career moves since I started back at Yale. Um, Mm -hmm it's hard not to be pretty passionate about resident education, having gone through residency and having, of course, ideas about what sorts of things we could do to make it better, more efficient, more Mm -hmm. fun. Um, And, you know, I I think, 
again, this may be an excessively positive view, but I think resident welfare also dictates resident success and well-being mm-hmm. and future success as a surgeon. So I think thinking about how we can keep our trainees happy and enjoying their jobs and feeling passionate and excited about the work, despite mm-hmm. long hours and being on call and working your butts off, I think, right. you know, I, I really want to create a, or help to create a program that is positive and upbeat and everybody's excited to come to work most of the time. Right. Um, and also gives really, really high quality education. So we've revamped a bunch of things already and I'm pretty excited about how it's going. I know. I love our new education schedule. I think that's been, yeah, I've loved it thus far. Good. (laughs) Um, I would love to transition to our final five, which are the last five questions I ask every guest on the She Can Fix a Podcast. And so number one, what is your favorite procedure to perform and why? I had a really hard time narrowing this down to a good flexor tendon repair versus a good perilunate dislocation. I like them both a lot for somewhat similar reasons, Mm -hmm. which is that they can both be extremely finicky. I mean, a flexor tendon repair, you have to do really, really well to have it work well. It also involves having a really good conversation with the patient and with the therapist. And these are patients that you follow for months. And if you do it well, you get such great functional outcomes. So I think it's one of, it's just really combines like the artistry of hand surgery with, um, yeah. with the ability to see that, oh, hey, the, the way I did this, including my careful coordination post-op <laughs> has led to a great result. And then perilunate sort of similarly, you're sort of putting the puzzle pieces of somebody's wrist back together, making mm-hmm. sure that everything is aligned just so, and you're taking an awful injury and giving them ideally a really good outcome. So probably those two. Nice. Very cool. What are your go-to topics for Grand Rounds presentations or invited speaking engagements? My favorite Grand Rounds that I gave was actually probably um, the residency interview talk that I gave two years ago. I don't know if you were um, there for that or I I was present. Yeah, where I talked about (laughs) sort of like the history of surgical education um, and uh, and work hours. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was a really fun talk to give and also really sort of made me think about our priorities and teaching our residents and designing our program. Yeah. No, that was, I loved it. I think it's, it's not something that we talk about enough, you know? And so, yeah, it was great that we were able to have that sort of a conversation. So yeah. What is your favorite story slash memory as an orthopedic surgeon? Um, This one was also kind of hard. (laughs) It usually is. This is usually the one where it's like, which one? Yeah, exactly. Um, I would say one that comes to mind, it's not a particularly like glamorous or exciting one, but when I was a resident, it was one of my first times taking call as a second year Mm -hmm. resident. And you know that feeling of like, okay, you're on your own. You're the one who's going to be doing the reductions and all the (laughs) stuff. And I um, I had a patient who had a I don't actually remember the fracture pattern particularly, but she had a distal radius fracture. Right. And I talked to her about it and I reduced it and I splinted her. And I saw this patient, I happened to see her in clinic maybe like a week or two later. And she ran up to me and hugged me and said, oh my gosh, you're the best because you reduced me so well. I don't need surgery. Thank you so much. And it was kind of, I guess, the first moment where I felt like my independent action had made this person's life so much better. Right. 
Oh, that's sweet. Yeah. I love distal radiuses, like reducing those in the ED. Yeah, I could I could do without going to the ED to reduce them these days. <laughs> but it was great um, at the time. Yeah. Oh, my word. What are your favorite activities outside of the operating room and outside of medicine? Um, well, I am pretty occupied these days with a 21-month-old boy <laughs> at home. Um, my favorite activities... Uh, Though in general, are traveling, which mm-hmm. 2020 has not been the best for. No. Uh, but my husband and I have been all over. We've been to the Galapagos and Machu Picchu and China wow. and Japan and Bhutan mm-hmm. and Nepal um, and all over Europe and Morocco and Egypt. We've had so many great trips. So I love that. And I love my babies and I love photography. Um, so those things actually all go together very well. Yeah, I have a really fancy camera. It's a Nikon D810. Um, oh. It's like a really nice camera. So mm-hmm. my house is full of pictures of our travels and pictures of my baby. Oh, that's really sweet. I know your Instagram feed is very much probably Oh, I'm a prolific, yeah, yeah. prolific Instagrammer. I can't help myself. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my word. My final question for you, Dr. Halim, is what advice do you have for orthopedic surgeons and orthopedic surgeons in training? Um, hmm. I hmm. think if my best piece of advice probably would be to make sure that you remember to keep yourself happy. I mean, I know I said this before, but I think happy, upbeat surgeons who are happy with their situation are going to be better surgeons. Um, And I think that's invariably true. If you are happy at work, if you're finding fulfillment at work, if you're finding professional um, challenges that really drive you, and if you're Mm -hmm. happy personally as well and avoiding burnout and kind of taking the time to do what you need to do to take good care of yourself, you're going to be the best possible surgeon. It means that you're going to be more empathetic and patient with your patients and you're just going to succeed more. And And I've always found that for myself when I'm in a really great place. I, I love going to the office and seeing patients and doing surgery. So, mm-hmm. you know, I think, I think that's really important. No, that's so sweet. Well, Dr. Halim, thank you so much for spending the time with me this morning while you are 39 weeks pregnant and about to give birth, but I really do appreciate you spending the time with me. Uh, In two days. Yes. Two two days days left. (laughs) Can't wait. This can be great. I'm excited. (laughs) Well, lovely to be here and, uh, you know, stay tuned for my Instagram updates on the new baby. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of the She Can Fix It podcast with Dr. Andy Halim. Please subscribe to our podcast to show your support. Another way you can provide support and keep this podcast up and running is to donate. You can visit our website at www.shecanfixitpod.com and visit our donation page. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at shecanfixitpod. I want to take this time to thank my lead editor and co-producer, Andrea Munger, without whom this podcast would not be possible. Thank you so much for listening and please stay safe.